say something just to start with about what I mean by feminism. Um, and this won't be very surprising to anybody, but I want to start by emphasizing the breadth of ideas and politics that we're talking about when we talk about feminism. Um, it might be true to say, I think, that there's virtually no point of agreement that unites feminists. Um, and that, that's not because there's some, somehow that feminists are disagreeable people that can't get on with each other. I think it's actually by the very nature of the category that it, it would be wrong to expect there to be something that all feminists could somehow converge upon. It would be similar to saying um, you're an advocate of education or you're an advocate of prison reform. Therefore, you must agree with uh, fellow advocates of prison reform or fellow advocates of education and somehow see them as allies in a common cause. It just doesn't work like that. It's such a broad category, that there are the differences within that camp are just as salient, I think, as, as, the, uh, as the similarities. Um, having said that, um, I think you have to say something to try and tie the strands together. And what I try and say uh, in the book, just to kind of get something going, is that there are two uh, common elements that all strands of feminism have in common. And one is the recognition or the belief that there is something which I call the fact of patriarchy, but you might also call inequality or gender injustice. Um, and that is just really the view that um, things are still not all right in terms of gender, right? And that the way in which they are not all right is to the detriment of women in particular. It might also be to the detriment of men, but I think it's part and parcel of being a feminist that you say that it's to the detriment of women in particular. So basically, there's still a problem. Oh, uh, okay. Sorry, I'll sit down and see if that's better. Okay. So the first is the idea that there is a fact of patriarchy. The idea that there is still somehow a problem. That things are somehow not, not okay now. And the second is a stance of opposition towards... Can, can no one hear? <laughs> Do you want me to start again? <laughs> okay. Okay. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Okay, I'll start again, look. Um, <laughs> the first point was to say that there is nothing really that unites the different strands of feminism. Um, it's like trying to say that somebody values education, thinks education is important in society, therefore uh, even Illich or um, A.S. Neal must somehow agree, have common cause with Michael Gove, right? I mean, pretty much everybody says that they value education, right? There, there's room within that camp of thinking that education is important for wildly, wildly disparate views and, and positions. Um, the other example I just gave was, was, was prison reform, right? It's one thing to agree that there's something wrong with the system of, of prisons in a society and that something needs to change. Um, and it's, you could perhaps add that it's something wrong in the treatment of prisoners, right? Um, but then to say that somehow you have a basis for, for common cooperation and agreement um, just by virtue of being advocates of prison reform or advocates of education would be to make a mistake about the kind of category you're dealing with. Right? Um, and I want to say something similar about feminism. There is something that ties feminists together, otherwise the term would be completely meaningless. And in the book what I say is that um, what it means to be a feminist is that you think that there is still a fact of patriarchy, that society is still patriarchal or still unequal, and that this works to the disadvantage of women in particular. And the second component is, of course, that you think that that's something to be overcome, right? You think that that's something that is not just written into the nature of the universe and could, must always be so, but could be different and should be different and will be different. So those are the two components that I see as making up the core of feminism. But you can agree on those two things, and thus count as a feminist. And beyond that, there is 
almost infinite variation on a number of questions that are at least as important as the decision as to whether to endorse that, those two core commitments in the first place. So, for example, having agreed that there's such a thing as patriarchy still and that it has to be overcome, you can disagree on exactly how it is that the status quo disadvantages women. Is it something economic? Is it about unequal pay? Is it about the way the family works? Is it something about um, uh, the biology of child, childbirth and child rearing? Is it uh, any number of things? Is it our culture? Right. Secondly, why are things like this? How does it begin? Why is, why is it sustained itself? Why is this system of patriarchy that, that is seen to be unjust or unwanted, why has it been so persistent? Why did it come about in the first place? Thirdly, what can we and should we do about it? Should we start by, I'm going to talk a bit about representation in a moment, right? should, we, should we think about trying to increase representation in certain institutions? Should we think about um, uh, the critique of, of, of sexual objectification? There are any number of ways in which you could think about feminist strategy. How, what, what should we actually do, given this shared acknowledgement that something is wrong? And finally, even what does it actually mean to be a woman? What, does, what is that category? What's, it, what's the status of that category? Um, I think those four points are points on which self-described feminists um, fundamentally disagree. Um, and I think the way in which we answer those questions can be at least as important, if not more, than the question of whether we, do, whether we actually endorse what I've described as the core of feminism, so namely the acknowledgement of a fact of patriarchy and the acknowledgement of the commitment to try and overthrow it. Um, and I think... Uh, the, the way in which we answer those particular questions, which ultimately are questions about politics, is certainly more interesting than our decision about how we apply labels. So there's, there's, a, there's a tendency um, among uh, the sorts of feminists that write a lot in The Guardian, perhaps, um, to talk about how sad it is that a lot of young women are reluctant to apply the label feminist to themselves. And there may be something to that. There may be some reason for sadness there. But I think sometimes this is, this is exaggerated. Um, and in fact... Some young women might have quite good reasons to be uncomfortable with the label feminism, and it might be due to the dominance of a certain kind of feminism which they rightly find unattractive, and that's the type that I'm going to come to discuss in a minute. But the, 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 the more basic point is that really whether we choose to apply a certain label is far, far less important than the actual stuff we say when we begin to talk about these political questions. What is it about the status quo that disadvantages women? Why are things like this? And have, why have they been like this? What can we do about it? Right. Those seem like the, the fundamental things. So I think we should be very, very wary of fixating on, uh, on the label. Um, so having said all that... Um, that should make some more sense of the fact that I'm about to criticize a kind of feminism and that I want to criticize a kind of feminism from a feminist point of view. And I hope that that doesn't seem sort of um, disloyal or, or overly divisive. What I've been trying to say is that it, it's inevitable that there are divisions because these are fundamental political disagreements that exist within feminism by the very nature of the breadth of the category of feminism. Um, so... Uh, and I think this is especially the case as feminism becomes more and more widely adopted as, uh, as, as an ideal, um, becomes kind of domesticated, if you like, becomes mainstreamed. Um, in that way, to the extent that it becomes mainstreamed, it, it gets more and more similar to the uh, analogue I, I mentioned earlier, so thinking that education is something of value, value to be promoted. Um, 
almost nobody disagrees with that. Um, it would be an exaggeration to say that almost nobody uh, disagrees with feminism. It would be a big exaggeration. But the more and more feminism becomes something that people are willing to identify with, the more similar it becomes to, to something like uh, v valuing education. Um, and the less meaningful uh, it becomes. So the more important it is to actually say something about what it means. Um, so the, my target, when I say that I want to criticize uh, a kind of feminism and to do that from a feminist point of view, um, I just want to briefly des describe the target I have in mind. Um, and that target is what I see as uh, a very, very prominent form of feminism, um, which is characterized by an emphasis on representation. Um, so again, this is something which I think will be very familiar to anyone who reads The Guardian or listens to the radio. Um, it's uh, characterized by the idea that we need to get more women into, into business, into high-ranking positions in business, into parliament, in positions as MPs. Uh, and it's also accompanied by talk of a glass ceiling and the need to break through a glass ceiling. That, I, I expect, will be familiar to everyone in this room, this, this, this kind of style of feminism. Um, and I want to raise some, some concerns about it and, and uh, suggest where its limitations may lie. Okay, so I want to say a bit more about that strand first. So um, I've, I've characterized it in terms of the politics of representation, which is, which is also there in my, in my title. Um, what I mean by the politics of representation is that when you come to talk about something like patriarchy or gender injustice, you frame that problem fundamentally in terms of underrepresentation. So when asked what is the problem, your answer is, well, underrepresentation. And it's a very short step from that to say, well, the target, the goal uh, for feminists is equal representation of women in all, across all institutions. It's also a very short step having framed the problem as underrepresentation and the solution as equal representation um, to begin to focus quite heavily and consistently on what you might call the top, right? The top of society, the top of the existing uh, institutions that, that constitute society. So prestigious positions uh, in, in, in politics, prestigious positions in business, and prestigious positions in academia are the three main categories that, that, that spring to mind. Um, and this makes some sense once you've accepted this framework, once you've decided that you can only really think about it in terms of representation, of course you're going to focus at the top because you wouldn't want to ask for women to be uh, represented more at the bottom, right? They're already, already represented perfectly well uh, in low-paid menial jobs, right? You don't need to increase that. So it, it, it's natural enough that you would look for the vacuum. You would look for where the women aren't. And there's this, this, this kind of old adage that goes that it, women are like oxygen. The higher you climb, the fewer, you know, the less there is, right? So um, if, you, if you think of it that way, then it's only natural that you'll focus on, on, the, on the higher um, ranks of society. So you see that, for example, at the moment in the, um, the way in which the debate around feminism has focused so heavily on Hillary Clinton. This is uh, in every, every newspaper. This is, this is a question of, uh, um, it's, it's almost as though, though feminism is somehow on trial. To the extent that Hillary Clinton succeeds, then it's a good sign for feminism. To the extent that she's knocked back, uh, it's a sign that um, we, we, we've come a long way, but we haven't come far enough. Right? She's almost become identified with, um, with a feminist goal. Okay, so... The, the first point of the politics of representation is to do with the framing of the problem and solution, underrepresentation and equal representation, respectively. 
The second, which is related to that, is a focus on the top of society, the top of institutions. And the third feature that I want to draw attention to is the idea that feminism is somehow freestanding. Um, it's, it's separable from the critiques that we might want to make of certain institutions, right? Critiques of capitalism, critiques of parliamentary democracy, critiques of the first-past-the-post system, critiques of the corporation. Within the politics of representation, those things are kind of neither here nor there. You might, in your spare time, want to criticize capitalism or criticize the corporation or criticize the first-past-the-post system or whatever, but that's not your job as a feminist, right? Your job as a feminist is to think about representation within the institutions that we have and getting it as close as possible to that golden um, equality mark, the golden 50-50. So, of course, you can criticize institutions as a feminist, but really only insofar as they fail to be sufficiently representative, only insofar as they fail to represent women um, uh, in a way that re reflects the general population. Okay, so I just want to acknowledge some of the attractions of, of, of this model before I um, start uh, trashing it. So, um, the first is that... Um, Women, in fact, are underrepresented under, under in, in, in many social institutions. That's not made up. Um, I also don't want to go anywhere near endorsing what I think of as a kind of benign explanation theory. So sometimes people say, well, there may be no women in business, but that's just because they're... Um, not really psychologically um, cut out for that sort of thing, or maybe they have different priorities. Uh, or there aren't very, so many women in philosophy, well, maybe that's just their choice, right? They just, they just you know, aren't particularly interested in um, such abstract, abstract questions. And this is often put in a very patronizing way, so good for them, they're so practical, you know, they like doing things that are actually worthwhile, um, which is a really, really sneaky kind of move. Um, but, but basically, I, I, I don't want to entertain what I'm calling these benign explanations theories, which try to say, yes, there's underrepresentation, but it's not really underrepresentation because it's, uh, it's a product of choice. It's not something that feminists should, should actually worry about. So I want to accept that there is such a thing as underrepresentation in a problematic sense, and that this, this uh, lack of representation of women in these institutions that I've mentioned does, of course, have everything to do with sexism or patriarchy or whatever you want to call it. The politics of representation as a model acknowledges that, and it begins from that acknowledgement. Advantage one. Advantage two uh, is that representation and underrepresentation is something which is relatively easy to measure and quantify. I think that's what accounts for a lot of its attraction. Um, hence, you get the plentiful statistics. You get the fact that, you know, in philosophy, 24% of permanent post holders are, are, are women, 29% of NPs, less than 10% of executive directors of top British companies. I'm not quite sure what that means, but in any case, um, it lends itself to these uh, these. Uh, this, this quantifiable data, which people find useful. Equally, once you uh, think about the problem as quantifiable, you can think about progress towards the solution as quantifiable as well. So you can see the, the, the proportion of MPs who are women increasing year upon year, and you can pat yourself on the back and say, this is, you know, this is, this is progress for feminism. Um, so those are the first two attractions. One, that it acknowledges something that is a real problem. Two, that it uh, is conveniently uh, quantifiable. And the third, I don't think, actually think is an advantage at all, but it's a perceived advantage. And this is the idea that you can somehow bracket contentious issues. You can put away for the sake of, uh, of feminism all those tedious disagreements you might have as to whether capitalism is a good thing or a bad thing, or whether... Um, you know, the system of democracy we have is a good or a bad thing, or is academia uh, a good institution or a bad institution? What's its role in society? 
all those things are put to one side. And the hope, I think, is that feminists can somehow unite on, on a purely feminist objective. They can agree that whatever you think of those institutions, women should have equal access to them. And the goal would be to represent them equally within those institutions. And that looks like an advantage, given that you know, we, we, we all know that the, the, the damage that can be done to, to political movements by internal division. It, if, if there's a promise to avoid internal division, then that looks very attractive. OK. I want to say a little bit more about that, um, um, maybe by way of just giving a few examples. I, I don't think it works. I don't think this attempt to, to remain neutral on the institutions in which you're asking for representation can work at all. Um, my view is that as soon as you demand representation in some institution, you're affirming the existence of that inf institution, at least in some minimal way. And I think... Uh, by thinking about some examples that can become clear. Um, the example that, was, that, that comes, across, comes up most, most commonly is um, that of the army. Right? So there was a time a couple of years ago when feminists were just expected automatically to be very pleased because women were allowed to serve in the front line. Right? And uh, it was somehow taken as, as given that as a feminist, at least, at least with your feminist hat on, right, you would be pleased about this and celebrating. And there were no end of articles um, in the media uh, talking about how far we'd come and what a triumph this was and how this was one of the last barriers that, was the, that had, uh, had fallen. And, of course, there is such a thing as uh, an anti-war strand in feminism. There's such a thing as a feminist critique of war. And so, naturally enough, although they weren't so prominent in the media, there were feminists who said, no, I'm, I refuse to celebrate this, um, and partly for feminist reasons, because I think that what the, the US military as an institution stands for is completely abominable, partly for feminist reasons, and there's no way I'm celebrating the inclusion of women in the front line, right? No way. And I think the response to that from... Um, um, from more, perhaps more mainstream feminists, was to say, well, that's just missed the point. That's a failure to separate issues clearly enough. Because, okay, fine, we can have legitimate criticisms of certain military institutions. We can have objections to wars. But that's a separate issue. If there's going to be an army, and if there's going to be a war, women should be allowed to join in the killing on equal terms with men, right? Um, anything else has moved beyond feminism and into something else, namely like, anti-war politics. And there's a certain appeal to that, right? It seems to separate things out in a, in, a, in a pleasing and neat way. I just don't think it works. And I think the reason it doesn't work is when you consider some uh, other institutions. Um, so, I mean, if you just change the example slightly, so you think about Guantanamo Bay, right? And you uh, imagine being called upon as a feminist to uh, celebrate the participation on equal terms of women in the torturing of, of, of inmates, right? Well, no, because obviously... At that point, you say, well, that's so beyond the pale that somehow it, there would be something wrong with celebrating that even as a feminist. So suddenly the idea that, that uh, your endorsement of uh, representation as a goal can be completely independent of the view you take as to the institution in which you're asking for that representation is blown out of the water. Because as soon as the institution is bad enough or uncontroversially bad enough, it becomes clear that somehow you, that asking for representation within it or celebrating representation within it involves some kind of an affirmation of that institution. Just take a slightly less gory uh, example, but, well, still fairly gory. There's a, um, there's a, there's a campaign group called The Hares um, in the UK, which... Uh, which 
um, lobbies for a change in the law to, so as to um, end, I think it's called male primogeniture, right? The, the law which says that, um, that if you are Lord whatever, uh, uh, you pass on your title to your, your nearest um, male relative and it skips your female descendants. So the, the daughter of Lord whatever can be passed over for some second cousin. And this is really terrible. And there's a website about it. You can look it up. It's called The Hairs. Um, and there's a, there's a campaign. Um, now, if, if you were asked as a feminist to celebrate, supposing they were to get their, their objective, if you were asked to celebrate this and to say what a victory for feminism it was that male primogeniture had been ended, or if you were asked to somehow put your name to a petition or publish an article calling for the end of male primogeniture in the British aristocracy, well, I, I suggest that it would, um, to, to fall into line with that, to cooperate with that, would be to uh, give an, an un, inappropriate endorsement of an institution that we really shouldn't be endorsing. It, it's to endow it with a certain kind of importance that we shouldn't be endowing it with. So, I mean, we can talk about that maybe in questions a bit more, but I, I, I'm really skeptical about this idea that you can just bracket the question of what we think about certain institutions and just focus on the representation as, uh, as feminists. I don't, I don't think that works. I think you're always implicated in um, uh, choosing which institutions to call for representation in and why. Okay. Um, another thing, so, so having talked about the attractions and also uh, why I'm not actually convinced that they are really that attra attractive, I want to talk about a positively unattractive feature of the politics of representation, um, which is the, the, the feeling that, that some critics have, which is that this focus on the top, which I've mentioned, um, seems to mean abandoning the majority of women. And you can think of women, uh, I guess, as the constituency of feminism, right? Feminism is supposed to speak on behalf of a certain group. It's supposed to represent a certain group. Um, it has a constituency, constituency, and the constituency is women. If you end up with a certain brand of feminism which, ends, which uh, focuses its attention on a tiny, tiny proportion of that constituency and has little to say about the rest, then it seems like somehow it's failed in, it, in its... Um, in its reason for, for, for being. Um, and that, I think, just to come back to the point about the, uh, the self-application of the label, that could help to account, I think, for the ambivalence, uh, ambivalence of certain women um, over the label feminism, the reluctance to apply that la label to themselves. Because if you have no particular uh, reason to think you're ever going to be the CEO of a company or a professor or uh, the prime minister, then what does this stuff really mean to you, this talk of a glass ceiling? If you're a cleaner, it doesn't really have. Any, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with you, and it can even be rather offensive. So, if people are put off by that sort of thing from wanting to call themselves feminists, well, then maybe they're right to be put off. Okay, so I think I've said enough about the politics of representation to justify questioning what um, can sometimes seem almost unquestionable, which is the idea that representation of women uh, uh, and equality of representation is something valuable. It's worth asking why it's valuable. It's also worth asking what exactly representation is. So representation can mean various different things. Uh, in an earlier age of feminism, there was a different kind of demand for representation. There was a demand for the franchise. And the represent re representation in question there consisted in being able to make your voice heard to register your preference in a certain kind of political system. 
he wanted the preferences of one half of the population to be registered, to be represented, as opposed to being excluded. That's one sense of representation. Um, the politics of representation that I'm talking about is very, very different from that. The sense of representation is very different. It's also nothing like a demand for women as a group, so I've mentioned women being like a constituency, um, to be represented in the sort of way that an MP represents voters or represents their constituents. If you ask what it is that people are asking for when they ask for representation or equality of representation now, the closest you can really say is it, that it's a demand for a certain kind of uh, symmetry or a match. You have a certain split in society. Um, you, you have, for example, uh, a kind of a racial division. You also have a gender division in society. And the demand for representation is you want the uh, institu certain institutions, generally ones that you see as valuable, um, to represent, to, to be reflective of that broader division in society. So if there's 50-50 women and men in the population, you want 50-50 philosophy professors and you want 50-50 MPs, right? That's the general idea, this kind of matching. Well, so it's actually worth asking, you know, why, why that should, should be important. Um, Clearly, it's not just for aesthetic reasons. It's not just because it's neat, right? There must be something about this that, that uh, we think uh, is important. And I think there are maybe three options when we try and cash out what that is. Um, one, I, I guess, is that it, it constitutes something. It somehow constitutes gender justice, right, for there to be uh, equal representation in every institution, um, political, or academic, military. The other is not so much that, the second is not so much that it constitutes um, some, some important goal, but that it's symptomatic or it's indicative of something important having been realized that you, that you reach a representative goal. So in order to get 50-50 representation in a certain institution, things would have to change. Certain things that are problems would have to go away, certain improvements would have to be made. So the, the achievement of that representative goal is symptomatic of an improvement rather than constitutive of it. Those are the first two, constitutive, indicative. The third is the idea that um, an advance in representation might be productive of something valuable, that it might be the cause rather than the effect, or as well as the effect. So there'll be some benefit attached to increasing the uh, proportion of women um, in an institution like academia or in an institution like um, parliamentary politics. Okay, so all of these, these, these three uh, are possible. Right? It's possible that you could uh, find value of any of these three kinds in an increase of representation. But, uh, and this is going to sound kind of um, uh, a bit of a non-point, but I think actually it's really important. Um, whether they're valuable in any of these three senses is going to be fundamentally dependent on the context. There's going to be no universal and timeless fact that somehow increasing the, uh, the representation of women in institutions is always and inevitably productive of some advantage, or that it's always and inevitably constitutive or indicative of some advantage. It's crucially context-dependent. Um, I, I sort of feel that, that, that context-dependent is an un unnecessarily fancy term for the, for the kind of points I'm making. It can sound kind of overly academic, and it can also sound kind of um, weaselly or, or vague in some way, and I don't think it is. It's actually a very, very simple, simple point that we wouldn't be able to do without. And as I was, uh, as I was writing this, I, I remembered, I think, the first time I, I ever became aware of the, con the concept of something, something being context-dependent. Right? And I think it was that I was told probably by my dad, that I, uh, my shirt was dirty, right? At this point, 
I informed him that it wasn't dirty, it was in fact ketchup, right? <laughs> and ketchup, of course, is not dirt, because otherwise, what are you telling me? I've just been eating dirt. So, and, and, and that, I think, is the first, there must be a reason why I remember that, and it's because this idea that somehow the same substance, the very same substance in one context could suddenly be dirt when it had been food a minute before, and, and it was just that a few inches, like a few inches away, and it suddenly becomes something else because of the context that it's in, um, was sort of mind-blowing. Um, but it's just the same point as that here, right? The idea is that in certain contexts, depending on the circumstances, depending on the surroundings, an increase towards this goal of 50-50 equality could be indicative of some kind of advance towards a feminist goal. It could be indicative of the opposite. It could be indicative of nothing. It really depends on saying more about the circumstances in, in which this plays out. Okay. Um, and I think you can make that clearer by uh, just thinking about, well, what you might call a, a thought experiment. So you, you suppose that, that women are selected according to some criteria and men are selected according to some criteria for some positions. You reach the 50-50 goal. According to a very, very crude, narrow focus on representation, everything is therefore fine and uh, equality must have been achieved. All you have to add into that story is some more detail about the selection criteria. Right. Supposing that the selection criteria for, uh, criterion for men is um, something rele relevant and unsurprising, like you know, merit in the field concerned, philosophical merit or whatever. Women, on the other hand, are selected for their dress sense, right, or for their perceived attractiveness to their male colleagues, right? Okay, that's a very, very simple example. I'm not suggesting that that is that, that is realised um, in any particular social institution, but the point now is just that the very fact of an advance towards the 50/50 representation, or even the realisation of 50/50 representation, would not constitute equality, obviously, because the criteria are so different for men from, from the criteria for women. Uh, it wouldn't constitute equality, it wouldn't be symptomatic or indicative of any progress towards equality, and would it be productive of equality? Well, I, I find it hard, well, maybe, but I, I mean, it seems kind of unlikely. Okay, um, so it depends. It fundamentally depends on the, the way in which it happens, how it happens, and the context in which it happens. Okay. And even just saying that means that certain questions that have often been presented as closed and obvious um, suddenly spring open. So questions like, would a Hillary Clinton victory be uh, proof of a more gender-equal America? Right? Suddenly becomes a non-obvious question, a very, very non-obvious question in my view. Does an increase in the proportion of women philosophers cons constitute progress? Well, it all depends. Um, I know that's vague in general, but I think that that has to be so. I just want to say something a bit more specific now about the, the third option. So there was the constitutive, the indicative, and the productive way of thinking of uh, increases of representation as being something valuable. I just want to say something about the third, the productive element. Um, so the idea there is that improved representation, usually at the top, um, is not just an improvement for the women who are lucky enough to ascend to the top. It's also something which is an improvement for all women. It's productive of an advantage. And the way in which it's productive of some benefit is, uh, has a certain kind of familiar structure. Um, and you can capture that by saying that the, the advantage or the, the benefit trickles down. And that's something that we're, we're very familiar with from um, economics, the idea that if you increase wealth at the top, 
that may not look like it's for everyone's advantage and you may um, you know be tempted to say foolish things like we should redistribute but then that would be very that would be very stupid because actually um, uh, if you increase wealth at the top that's the way to make it better for everybody because that wealth will ultimately trickle down should be clear by now that uh, in the context of economics that's completely false um, but but it might be that the situation in feminism is different, right? Um, I think people at least find it much less obvious in the case of feminism, judging by the relentless focus on leadership positions and very, very privileged positions, very elite positions. I think there is this idea that if you improve representation at the top of institutions, political, academic, military, or whatever, it will be better, not just for the women who get those positions, but for all women in those institutions, or all women considering entering in those institutions, and perhaps all women even more broadly than that. Um, so that's, that idea is what constitutes the second or the first half of my title, the, trickle, the idea of trickle-down feminism. Um, so I just want to finish by saying a little bit more about that. Um, so why is it then that we would think that, unlike in the case of economics, this effect will somehow trickle down? I can think of two main possibilities, and the first you might call sisterhood, and the second you call the role model effect. So the idea of sisterhood, I suppose, is that uh, if you um, increase representation at the top, you will have more women at the top, and women will uh, be basically be nicer to other women. They will promote other women. Now, that is at the very least uh, an empirical claim, which may or may not be true. Um, it can the, the the blind faith in that claim being true can very very easily shade into something that feminists have really long argued against, which is a kind of they call it essentialism. Um, this is the idea that somehow women are essentially fundamentally different from men, and therefore you can change the world by changing the makeup of the people who run the world. If you just get more women into positions of power, if you get a women world leader, if you get a woman prime minister, you'll get a kind of politics. You'll get you'll have no more wars because women are somehow gentler, more cooperative, have a different kind of style. Again, a bit like trickle down in economics. I think we've by now seen some reason to think that this is uh, not so hopeful. Um, Sisterhood, the, the idea of sisterhood and a kind of solidarity among women um, is maybe a little more complicated, but it's quite easy to see how one could bleed into the other. So, are you, I mean, is the idea actually that women will be, will be nicer to each other because they're women, or is the idea that somehow women are just nicer? And if the idea is that women are just nicer, I suggest that that's, that's false, right? I mean, I think uh, <laughs> that there is the, the usual range of human virtues and vices in, 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 in both or all genders, and I don't think feminism is very well served by pretending otherwise. So the first uh, justification for expecting a trickle-down effect I don't think is, is um, very secure at all. The second... Um, is what I've called the role model effect. That's talked about a lot, partly because people are very keen on psychology at the moment, and the role model effect is something that psychologists like to talk about, and so um, it's a bit like the representation, it's seen as measurable. Now, actually, okay, actually, um, the role model effect seems like the sort of thing that is paradigmatically unmeasurable. I mean, how do you, how do you go about measuring a role model effect? I mean, the best you can do is, is uh, um, do a lab study uh, and, and have a, um, 
you know, a picture of a, of a purported role model on the wall or uh, present people with a role model and then ask them a kind of flat-footed question like how positive do you feel about yourself um, succeeding in the same activity that this, this, this purported role model has just succeeded in. And it's not clear what you can really infer from that kind of um, study outside of, of, of uh, society. You can, of course, forget the lab context and think about looking at real politics and, and, and real social events, but then it becomes extremely difficult to isolate cause and effect and to say that anything is actually caused by the existence of some role model rather than, for example, there being a common cause. The same underlying change that made it possible for a woman to occupy some position also made it possible for other people to contemplate occupying that position. You know, I mean, it, it's really, really very dubious. Um, further to that, I think we have to ask what it is, when we talk about the role model effect, what, it is, what, what is it that is supposed to be the benefit um, of having a role model to look up to? And often, um, the, the thought process here is implicitly circular. So the idea is that it's good to have more women at the top or more women in a certain institution because, of course, then that, there'll be role models for other women. And why is that good? Well, because then they'll also be more women coming up to the top, right? So uh, you think represent more representation is valuable because it promotes more representation. And you never really get to the question of whether the more representation was valuable and why, because it just becomes a, self, a kind of self-justifying um, process. If, on the other hand, you think that there is a more general benefit which goes beyond and below this, this, just this pursuit of representation for its own sake, then we get back to the worry about essentialism. So if you have female MPs, that might encourage more female MPs. Great, okay, so you, you, you make progress towards that goal. Why was that supposed to be important again? Maybe because women MPs will really stick up for the interests of women in their constituencies and in the country in general. Again, no particular reason to think that that happens. Whether people stick up for the interests of women in their constituencies actually has much more to do with their politics than about their, their, their gender and what they represent in that sense. Okay, um, I don't have that much more to say about that, but except to say that if really this, in any case, even, even limiting it to the self-perpetuating process of representation perpetuates more representation, if that effect were really so strong, I would have thought things would, cha would have changed more than they actually have uh, after we've had not only Thatcher, but Theresa May as well, right? Why are we somehow still underrepresented and also underserved by um, those who are supposed to represent us? It doesn't speak volumes for the, the potency of this, this, this so-called um, role model effect or of the sisterhood effect, for, for that matter, either. So just to, just to finish off, um, I think there's a completely different way of thinking about feminism, which moves away from the politics of representation, as I've sketched it and that alternative approach is to come back to the idea of feminism having a constituency which which feminists are supposed to represent um, and if you want to represent the constituency that means representing women well then you have to ask where are the women right and the vast vast majority of women of course are not in the boardrooms of corporations or in parliament I mean, they are uh, largely in ordinary um, ordinary occupations, ordinary roles in society. And in fact, further than that, they are disproportionately clustered at the bottom of society. So the austerity, for example, isn't, isn't generally uh, introduced as a feminist issue. 
it's one of those things that the approach I've been talking about might bracket off as a separate thing to talk about maybe later. Are you anti-austerity? Good. Well, you can do that when you finish being a, being a feminist. But, of course, it's, it's not news, actually, that, that, that the impact of austerity has hits women uh, disproportionately hard. So not only are the majority of women not in these positions of privilege, but in, uh, in positions of uh, you know, more, more normal um, roles in society, they're disproportionately hit by um, things like the politics of austerity. Uh, the part of the critique of the anti-war feminists have made is that they're also disproportionately hit by, by war. Um, I think the same point is made about environmental catastrophe. And the more you think about those things, the more issues actually turn out to be, to, to be feminist issues after all, and not to be sharply separable um, from, from the feminist cause. And that might be awkward because it might mean that you then have to start arguing with each other about these things and you can't unify on a, on a, on a minimal platform which just says we're just going to think about the women thing and not about other things. But I think that is just life and it just is how it has to be. So just to, to conclude, I, I would um, urge that if we, want, if we care about representation, we should think about representation not in terms of a kind of mirroring of, of a demographic split, but in terms of actually representing women by starting from where they actually are rather than asking them to lean in or by <laughs> offering them crumbs from the table of other more successful women.